Okay, let's 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 start. Uh, well, you can see it's acquaintance and lessons today. Right, thanks. It's done. Okay, I want to move a little bit in what I'm talking about to look at at uh, the content of thought as well as the qualitative character of experience as the subject matter of the kind of knowledge I'm, I'm looking at. Although, basically today I want to talk about the connection between the two. So Saul Kripke's story about Pierre is as notorious as Frank Jackson's story about Mary. So I'm going to start today by sketching the lesson that David Lewis thought we should draw from Kripke's story. Uh, uh, a story about what Pierre does and does not believe. And then I want to connect this to the lesson, uh, the, connect this lesson with Lewis's views about what we do and don't know and believe about the qualitative character of our experience. So I'm going to talk about a number of interconnected theses that Lewis discusses about our relation to the contents of our thoughts, about the way a materialist should understand qualia, and about the role of phenomenal experience as a foundation for knowledge. So there are some some conflicts, some actually some contradictions, I think, between uh, the theses that make up uh, the package that Lewis defends. And I think it helps to um, uh, bring to the surface some assumptions that underlie the puzzles about our knowledge of our own states of mind that we're circling around. Um, and I think that uh, the problems, the tensions in these uh, doctrines derive from a mix of internalist and externalist perspectives. So I'm going to suggest we need a more thoroughgoing externalist perspective and a more thoroughgoing contextualism than Lewis defends in order to get clear about our knowledge of experience and thought. So they're going to remain when, when I'm... Um, finished today, some familiar tensions between externalism about content and our special access to content. Uh, and I'm going to focus on these tensions or, uh, next, uh, next week in the last lecture. Okay, so Pierre, you re will recall, was this monolingual French speaker who learned about a famous faraway city London, although he called it Londres. And uh, uh, Pierre came to believe, uh, on the basis of what he read about it, that London is pretty. Later, he moved to London, learned English, and came to believe that London is not pretty. But since he didn't realize that the city he had moved to was the same city he learned about earlier, he continued to hold his original belief, continuing to say when speaking French, Londres Jolie. Now, David Lewis took Kripke's story to be a decisive refutation of what he called a certain simple analysis of belief sentences, an analysis that he argued fails for, a, uh, quote, fails for another reason as well, since it requires believers to have a knowledge of essences, which they do not, in fact, possess, unquote. Okay, so... Um, huh. 
Oh, there we go. Uh, this is the simple analysis. To say that Pierre believes that London is pretty is to say Pierre believes the singular proposition that is true in possible worlds in which the actual city London is pretty and false in possible worlds in which it is not. So basically the, the puzzle that Kripke uh, raised um, presumed that, uh, that we can take the content of Pierre's belief to be uh, what it straightforwardly seems to be, namely the singular proposition. Um, so um, the analysis is refuted, Lewis argued, because it yields the conclusion that Pierre, according to the story, has contradictory beliefs. That is, he believes the singular proposition and believes its negation. But Lewis agrees with Kripke, uh, that this conclusion is unacceptable. Although Kripke was perhaps a little equivocal about this since he didn't present a solution to his problem, just, just presented the puzzle. Still, quoting, um, quoting Kripke, as Lewis quotes Kripke, um, Pierre lacks information, not logical acumen. He cannot be convicted of inconsistency to do so is incorrect. But Lewis argued that we shouldn't need an apparent inconsistency to see the inadequacy of the singular proposition analysis. We should reject it even in an ordinary case where the believer thinks of London or George W. Bush or the Eiffel Tower or whatever in only one way. The problem, Lewis argues, is that to attribute a singular belief about an object to someone is to attribute knowledge of the essence of the object to the believer, knowledge that the believer rarely or never has. Lewis made the point by describing a possible world that he claimed, uh, quote, fits Pierre's beliefs perfectly, unquote, but in which the city distinct from London, uh, a city distinct from London plays the role that London, in fact, uh, plays. That is, he argues that there is a possible world compatible with Pierre's beliefs in which a different city, Bristol, as it happens in uh, Lewis's story, acquires the name Londres in French and is the origin of the beliefs that Pierre expresses in that world by saying Londres est jolie. So the story basically says, let's suppose that um, in the possible world in question, um, uh, the city, which is actually Bristol, had a different name. It was called Launders in English. Uh, uh, and uh, it was translated Londres in, in French in this world. And uh, all of Pierre's beliefs that he acquired while in France, in the actual story, uh, in this possible world, uh, the source of those beliefs is Bristol, or as he calls it, Londres. So basically we tell a story in which an actual city um, uh, is the causal source of Pierre's uh, beliefs that he acquires when still in France. Not a, One doesn't have to make the story terribly uh, implausible because Pierre's beliefs about London, at least the ones he has before he moves there in French, are very... Uh, somewhat minimal, acquired by just reading a few guidebooks and 
learning about a few monuments, and we can make the story so that those uh, the things, all the things that Pierre believes about Londra, as he calls it, are in fact true in the possible world in question of, uh, of Bristol. Um, okay, since Pierre is ignorant of some of the essential I mean, we don't need this particular story. Lewis makes the general point that since Pierre is ignorant of some of the essential properties of London, there will be possible, since he's ignorant of them, therefore there will be possible worlds compatible with his knowledge in which the city in question lacks some of the essential properties of London. And any possible city that lacks the essential properties of our London cannot be our London. It seems reasonable to say that such possible worlds, it seems reasonable to Lewis to say that um, uh, such possible worlds are compatible with Pierre's beliefs because um, were a world of this kind to have turned out to be actual, Pierre would have said things turned out exactly as he expected and he would have been right to say that. Now there is a straightforward objection to this argument which Lewis anticipated. The objection simply denies that the counterexample world is one that fits Pierre's beliefs. Quote, uh, quoting Lewis again, citing the, uh, sort of expositing the objection, for Pierre believes that London is pretty, the objector says, whereas the counterexample world is one where London is not pretty. The objector grants that Pierre, in Lewis's counterexample world, will say things, will say that things turned out exactly as he expected, and he acknowledges that Pierre will be right to say this in that world, since what Pierre believes in that possible world is different from what he believes in the actual world. But, the objection continues, this does not imply that what, what Pierre actually believes is true in that possible world. So, uh, here's, uh, here's the actual world Pierre is thinking, Londres à Jolie, uh, this is the counterfactual world where Londra refers to Bristol and uh, Pierre is thinking a thought which from the inside seems just the same, Londra as Jolie. Uh, and then we can say that um, uh, this matrix representing the truth values of the proposition that he thinks in the actual world, it's one that's true in the actual world and false in C, whereas the proposition that he's thinking in the counterfactual world is one that's false in the actual world and true in... I shouldn't say that um, because that implies that Bristol is in fact not pretty. And I don't want to say that. Um, so, uh, uh, right, so maybe it's true in both... Uh, um, um, both... Uh, a possible worlds uh, if you think Bristol is a pretty city. And, uh, I, I will suspend judgment on that question, not having been there. Uh, but the main point is that the proposition expressed, I mean, the sort of central point is that the proposition expressed in the actual world on this analysis is false in world C, uh, and so therefore not compatible with what Pierre actually believes, whereas it's true uh, in world C, the proposition which he expresses in world C. So that makes it reasonable to say, if you accept this analysis, that uh, what uh, that that uh, that Pierre is right in World C to say everything turned out just as I thought, um, but 
that does not imply that the actual belief that he had is one that's um, that's uh, true in the counterfactual uh, world. Um, Okay, now the dialectic here is somewhat familiar uh, from arguments about twin earth and from Tyler Burge's defense of anti-individualism. That is, the basic structure of a Tyler Burge uh, anti-individualist thought experiment about arthritis or sofas or whatever is to describe a counterfactual situation in which the content of the thought of the person in that counterfactual situation is different than the content of the thought in the actual uh, situation. So one senses a kind of standoff here, and that Lewis wants to say the proposition uh, believed is the one that's true in both possible worlds, uh, whereas uh, the sort of uh, externalist or anti-individualist argument is, is a different proposition in the two possible worlds. But Lewis and the internalists argue in defense of their view that unless we take belief to be, an, as he says, quote, an inner narrowly psychological state, we cannot account for a believer's access to his own uh, beliefs. So uh, this is, a, again, quote from, from Lewis. Anyone is in principle in a position to notice and correct a state of the head which can be characterized by assigning contradictory propositional objects. But why should philosophical and logical acumen help him if the trouble lies partly outside? So him is a general rejection of the externalist uh, account. As soon as we accept the consistency of Pierre's beliefs as a datum, as I did on Kripke's invitation, uh, we are committed to the narrowly psychological conception of belief and its objects. Now, I think Lewis is wrong about two things here. First, that we need a narrowly psychological or internalist conception of intentional states in order to explain the way in which Pierre is consistent and more generally to account for the kind of knowledge of his attitudes and reasoning that he has. And again, I'm going to talk more about some of those issues next next week. But second, I also think that it is less clear than Lewis supposes that our access to our intentional states would be unproblematic if we assumed that they were intrinsic states of the head. The qualitative properties of our experience are presumably narrowly psychological in the sense Lewis has in mind. And yet our knowledge of them is not unproblematic, as we have seen in discussing uh, the thought experiments about marriage. Lewis, at least, argues that we don't know their essences, that is, the essence of the qualitative character of our experience any more than Pierre knows the essence of London. So I'm going to look at Lewis's somewhat equivocal account of qualitative experience and our knowledge of it before turning to the challenge of reconciling an anti-individualist account of propositional content with the kind of knowledge of it that thinkers must have if we are to account for their rationality. Now, just as Lewis thinks we can't have singular beliefs about a particular city or person without knowledge of the essence of the city or person, so he thinks we can't have singular beliefs about the qualitative character of our experience without knowing the properties that are essential to those experiences. 
one might conclude that since we obviously are acquainted with the character of our experience, we therefore, by sort of by the very idea of the character of experience, we therefore must know their essential natures. And Lewis thinks that it is in fact part of the folk concept of phenomenal experience that we do have such knowledge, simply in virtue of having the experience. But he argues that this is a mistake. This is a part of the folk conception that we should uh, reject. That is, we should reject what Lewis calls the identification uh, thesis, which is um, on the handout. So, the, the, and again, the identification a thesis that Lewis thinks is part of the um, part of the folk concept of qualia, even though he recognizes qualia as a philosopher's technical term, he thinks that we do have a kind of intuitive, common sense conception of the qualitative character of experience, whatever we call it, uh, and that this is part of the part of the folk concept, but part of the folk concept that in fact doesn't apply to anything and so it should be rejected. So that it's the knowledge I gain by having the experience with quality Q enables me to know what Q is, identifies Q in this sense. Any possibility not ruled out by the content of my knowledge is one where it is Q and not any other property instead. That is the quality of my experience. Equivalently, when I have an experience with quality Q, the knowledge I thereby gain reveals the essence of Q a property of Q such that necessarily Q has it and nothing else does. Now, a materialist who's committed to the thesis that qualia are physical properties of physical events must reject the identification thesis, as Lewis does, since it's clear that simply having experience does not reveal the specific physical nature that, according to the materialist, they essentially have. And of course, that's what comes out in the Mary experiment. That is, she being so knowledgeable about uh, the, the, uh, the physical and, and physiological facts about uh, color and color experience knows the essential character of, um, uh, of, um, of color experience, but still lacks knowledge of it of another kind. Now, I think Lewis is right to reject the identification thesis, but I also think the consequences of doing so are more radical than he realized. So it's one thing to conclude, as Lewis does in his discussion of Pierre, that our knowledge of things like cities and people is indirect, mediated by knowledge of the contingent properties of other thing, of those things. But if knowledge of the character of phenomenal experience is indirect in the same way, what is it mediated by? Lewis himself assumed that experience plays a special role in providing a foundation for knowledge. And his account of this role, in fact, conflicts with his rejection of the identification thesis. That is, I'm going to argue that Lewis is committed to the identification thesis um, that he, he rejects. So I'm going to talk now a little bit about, about Lewis's uh, analysis or account of knowledge. Um, so what we know on Lewis's account of knowledge is what is true in all of the possibilities, all the possible worlds, well, taking account of 
self-locating knowledge, we want to talk about maybe centered worlds, but all the possibilities that are unlimited by our evidence. And Lewis identifies in giving this analysis um, evidence with uh, experience. Lewis gave a characteristically sharp and clear formulation of what it means for a possibility to be eliminated by the evidence. So, um, and again, a lot of the work of the paper is, was, is, is to take, start with this very simple um, um, account of knowledge and then um, spell out the various terms involved in it, say, say more about them. But subject S knows that P, if and only if S's evidence, eliminates every relevant possibility, which is not P. And then... I say, then to the account of what it means to eliminate a possibility, I say that the unaliminated possibilities are those in which the subject's entire perceptual experience and memory are just as they are. A possibility W is uneliminated if the subject's perceptual experience and W exactly match his perceptual experience and memory in actuality. So the idea is we have a kind of conception of this internal subjective state and provided it's um, the the possible worlds in which it is different from what it is in the actual world are the eliminated possibilities. Now, Lewis, in the context in which he gave this definition, is mainly concerned uh, with the problem of how, if knowledge is understood in terms of the elimination of possibilities by experience, we are able to answer the skeptic. How do we know more than anything except things about our inner experience? His strategy for reconciling the thesis that knowledge requires the elimination of possibilities by uh, by experience, uh, reconciling this with, with the possibility of knowledge that goes beyond experience, was to give a contextualist account of knowledge that permits us in context to ignore certain possibilities that are not eliminated by experience. That is, you have. That's why the uh, the, the clause uh, first uh, clause says every relevant uh, possibility. So it's a kind of relevant alternatives uh, contextualist account. Um, but on Lewis's account, we will at least know in any context that the possibilities excluded by our experience, possible situations in which our experience does not match our actual experience we will know that these are possibilities that are incompatible with our knowledge. The problem is that all of these possibilities will be possibilities in which our experience has whatever essential properties our actual experience has. That is, Lewis's account of knowledge implies that even in the most skeptical context, we will know the essential nature of our experience. Uh, Know exactly our experiences, know exactly what they are in, to use Lewis's phrase, an uncommonly demanding and literal sense of knowing what. This means that Lewis's account of knowledge entails the identification thesis that he rejects, and it also entails the principle I talked about last week, the, that uh, epistemic alternatives to the actual world must be phenomenally indistinguishable from it. Now, the source of the tension in Lewis's accounts, uh, I think, uh, is that it's motivated by a mix of internalist and externalist ideas. 
The reason experience and memory, phenomenal experience and sort of uh, memory as seen from the inside, are given a special and context-independent role in determining um, what the subject knows is that these things are supposed to be accessible from the inside and independent of what lies outside. But that's the internalist idea. But Lewis's account of the elimination of possibilities is resolutely externalist in that the evidence that gives knowledge is described from an external point of view. In this respect, his account of the role of experience in providing a foundation for knowledge is like the view uh, of, uh, d- developed by uh, Quine and Sellers that I talked about uh, briefly in the first uh, lecture. That is, Lewis insists that it's not the propositional content of our experience that does the eliminating. Rather, it's the existence, uh, quoting now, rather it's the existence of the experience. So, unquote. So, world W is eliminated from the epistemically possible worlds, not because the experience represents the world as being different from W, but rather because W is a world in which the subject is not having the experience. Lewis says that his account does not require him, quote, to tell some fishy story of how the experience uh, has some sort of ineffable, infallible, purely phenomenal propositional content who needs that, unquote. But Lewis is stuck with infallibly known evidence propositions, whether he wants them or not, since there is, on his account, a proposition represented by a set of possible worlds that is true in exactly those possible worlds in which the subject's experiences exactly match his experiences in the actual world. And this proposition corresponds to a fact that the subject knows, simply in virtue of having the experiences that he in fact has. Now, I think Lewis's account of knowledge is right to represent knowledge in terms of a set of uneliminated possible situations. Uh, I think an adequate account of knowledge requires that we connect a state of knowledge with the way the world is, according to the knower. The problem, I think, is that the account does not recognize the extent to which knowledge claims are contrastive and context-dependent. Lewis's account is a contextualist one, uh, as I said, allowing that certain possibilities determined by context are that are not eliminated by experience are nevertheless properly ignored. But what is needed is a context-sensitive account of the evidence that does the job of eliminating possibilities. So just to kind of um, sketch uh, or give a picture to get the point, um, uh, represent the point. Uh, so this is logical space. Uh, this is the actual world R. And we can think of this in terms of, of, um, of Mary in this uh, um, uh, coin flip scenario that I described uh, last week. So this is the actual world R in which she's having a phenomenal red experience. This is the counterfactual world G, uh, which is one such that in the way I told the story, she doesn't know whether she's in world R or world G. But on Lewis's view now, we can say these are the possibilities in which Mary's experience exactly match actuality. 
Uh, and, of course, they will not include the world G, but will include the world R. Knowledge um, isn't just given by that circle, but rather by, um, by the intersection circle of the relevant alternative possible worlds, the possible worlds which uh, one is paying attention to and one is not properly, uh, excluding all the ones that one's properly ignoring. Um, so um, we can restrict uh, the, uh, we, we can give her more knowledge by restricting the class of, of uh, epistemically possible worlds to the relevant uh, alternatives to the actual world. And that might be different in a different context. But in every context, it will exclude the world G. So uh, on Lewis's view, Mary knows uh, that world G is excluded. Um, now, as I noted, Lewis's account is contextualist. It involves the shift in the uh, relevant alternatives. Uh, and... Most of the project in the paper in which he gives his analysis of knowledge, called elusive knowledge, most of the paper is devoted to a detailed characterization of the contextual factors that are relevant to the interpretation of knowledge claims. So specifically on Lewis's analysis, we're allowed to ignore certain uneliminated possibilities, and the constructive project is to set out an elaborate set of rules constraints on the possibilities that are properly ignored, what you're allowed to ignore and what you're not. But the account of knowledge is basically a foundationless, despite this contextualism, is basically a foundationless account. And the contextualism is superficial. It's a way to reconcile common sense talk about knowledge with an underlying Cartesian skepticism. Or so it seems to me. So let me just use an analogy to try to explain what I have in mind in distinguishing a more superficial from a deeper kind of contextualism. There's a debate uh, but in the philosophical literature, um, in which uh, Tim Williamson has uh, been involved, uh, about whether it makes sense to quantify over absolutely everything. Now, there is obviously no set of absolutely everything, or perhaps any other entity that constitutes the totality, every single entity that constitutes the totality of everything. But some philosophers, uh, Richard Cartwright, Tim Williamson, Augustine Rayo, to name uh, three, among others, um, argue that the range of our quantifiers may still consist of a plurality that is all-inclusive. Other philosophers, Charles Parsons, Michael Dummett, Michael Glansberg, to name uh, three, uh, have argued that there is no intelligible notion of absolutely everything. Any domain can potentially be seen, every, any domain of a quantifier, can potentially be seen as partial relative to something more inclusive in another context. Now, there's a complex mix of technical and philosophical issues involved in this debate, and it's, in fact, difficult to state the contrasting theses in a clear and neutral way. Each side may argue that the other can't even state their, their view without presupposing the opposite. Now, I don't want to enter into this debate in this context, but just to note that there is an issue on which these philosophers, or at least most of them on opposite sides of the debate, do not disagree. 
And it's this. About, uh, it's this. Quantifiers, as used in natural language, as well as in many technical uh, applications, are most often context-dependent quantifiers. They range over contextually restricted domains. Both sides in this debate will agree that we may speak the literal truth when we say such things as, there is no beer left, or all the children are accounted for, or everyone has gone home. Both sides in this debate are contextualists about the quantifiers. But according to one side, but not the other, the context dependence is ineliminable. And so the contextualism is not just a fact about the way our language is used to generalize, but a fact about the nature of generalization. For the absolutist, if I may call them that, uh, the contextualism about quantifiers is superficial. Though we, in fact, often let implicit contextual factors restrict our domains, that's part of the way our language works, we wouldn't have to do so. There is an absolute domain, if I may speak loosely, using a singular term to refer to what is properly spoken of only in the plural. So there is an absolute domain of which all other domains are restrictions. And we could, in principle, speak a language in which all of our contextual restrictions are made explicit. Now, Lewis's contextualism about knowledge is superficial in, and again, there's no uh, uh, evaluation in distinguishing superficial uh, from deep here. It's uh, part of the idea, say, of the absolutists about um, uh, quantifiers that, that uh, the contextualism of this, of this kind is, is, uh, is superficial. Um, so uh, there is a class of all possible worlds on Lewis's view, and there is an absolute or Cartesian skeptical context for the interpretation of knowledge claims in which none of them, none of these possibilities are properly ignored. This context has, one might think, a privileged status, since all other contexts can be seen as restrictions on it. It's tempting to think, if you adopt this view, this sort of, kind of superficial contextualism, that what we really know on the Lewis analysis is what we know in the unrestricted context. The rest is just loose talk. Uh, and there are remarks toward the end of Lewis's paper which support the idea that he's inclined to succumb to this temptation. That is, he suggests that descriptions of knowledge are just, quote, a handy but humble approximation and, quote, one of the messy shortcuts that we resort to because we are not smart enough to live up to really high, perfectly Bayesian standards of rationality. Now, one might be, or might not be satisfied with this kind of response to skepticism. Um, and one might be skeptical that um, one could even give an account of perfectly Bayesian standards of rationality um, um, in terms of this kind of purely Cartesian internalist context. But uh, my, uh, my problem with Lewis's analysis is not about the uh, status of the rules that allow us to expand our knowledge beyond what is eliminated by experience, but rather about the assumption that phenomenal experience automatically brings knowledge. 
My complaint is not that he gratuitously permits possibilities to be ignored, but rather that he presumes an unjustifiably firm foundation for knowledge. Even in the skeptical context, as the picture uh, uh, shows, Lewis's account implies that we know too much about the essential nature of our experience. We need a context not to explain how we can go beyond our experience to eliminate possibilities, but rather to provide an account of the information that does the eliminating. Now, the story about Mary in the coin flip scenario illustrates the complex relation between experience and evidence. That was its point. Just having the experience of seeing, uh, just having the experience of seeing the red star, was not enough to give Mary the evidence she needed to eliminate the alternative possibility that she was having an experience with a very different qualitative character, the qualitative character she would have had if she had seen the green star instead of the red one. And again, there wasn't enough evidence in the particular context. Uh, in which uh, the problem was, the issue was posed. But where, what were the epistemic consequences for Mary of leaving her room and seeing color for the first time? What did she learn? It's tempting to say that what she did was to acquire a new concept. And this is, of course, what, um, what uh, many people responding, we talked about in the Freudian strategy and various, and I've talked about the, the phenomenal concept strategy attempting to say that she acquired a new concept for the qualitative property that she came to exemplify. She already had one concept of that property uh, before leaving her room, the one she learned from all her study, and after she was presented with the red star, she had two concepts without knowing that they were concepts of the same property. Just as Pierre had two concepts of London without knowing they were concepts of the same city. The second concept that Mary acquired was, it's sometimes said, a pure phenomenal concept. Although uh, people like Brian Lohr talk about recognitional concepts. Perhaps other people have talked about demonstrative concepts. It's tempting to say this, and there may be something right about it, but I don't think these creatures of darkness concepts will help us to clarify what's going on. We can't avoid our problems by introducing an additional layer of intentional apparatus between the knower and the features of the world, or in the case, in this case, features of the subject that are known. And I, just as a um, side remark, uh, my view is that the main attraction of concepts uh, is that they facilitate equivocation between vehicles of representation, that is, the linguistic or mental objects or features that do the representing on the one hand and the meaning or content of the representation on the other. So what are concepts? Some think of them as something like mental words, words of a language of thought. Presumably, their meanings are essential to them. To grasp a concept is to know its meaning. Or perhaps the concept is the meaning. But what is the meaning of the pure phenomenal concept that Mary acquired? Uh, that is, this is the concept that 
following John Perry, uh, we called wow, or she, we allowed her to dub it with the word wow. More specifically, is the concept that Mary acquired in the actual world, the world in which she was shown the red star, the same concept as the one that she acquired in the alternative world in which she was presented with the green star? We know that Mary would have had a different kind of experience had she been shown the green star, but would the concept she acquired have been a different concept? So again, we're shifting here from talking about the qualitative character of experience to talking about the intentional uh, representation of that, uh, that experience. And, and I want to suggest that there are problems with both answers uh, to, to, uh, to the question. Okay, so here back to this picture of Mary in the two possible worlds in which she sees the red star and the green star. So she is thinking, wow, um, as she contemplates her experience, naming it wow. In the G world, she is also uh, thinking, wow. And the question is, is uh, just as with, with Pierre, uh, we could ask, is Pierre entertaining, the, is the content of the thought Pierre is entertaining when he says Londres, when he thinks Londres is jolie, or London is pretty, um, the same um, the same content as he's thinking uh, in the uh, in the counterfactual situation or a different one. So, um, um, if these two wow concepts are the same, then Mary knows what concept she is thinking, she is expressing, and she says wow. But that concept is only contingently connected to the experience itself. So it's like a non-rigid concept. Um, for a a type of qualitative experience. So it's not really a pure phenomenal concept, but a descriptive concept or perhaps a demonstrative uh, concept that gets its meaning from the contextual situation that she's in. Um, uh, So it's identified by that rather than by the intrinsic character of the experience itself. On the other hand, the other horn of the dilemma is to suppose that the wow concept expressed in the two possible worlds is different, so we'll we'll assume we have two discernible uh, concepts. Um, Suppose they're object-dependent concepts identified by by the phenomenal properties themselves, the qualia to which they in fact refer. In this case, they might reasonably be called pure phenomenal concepts, but we will have to conclude that Mary does not know which of the two concepts it is that she is thinking. Her thought on this account will violate what... um, um, Michael Dummett uh, called a principle of epistemic transparency. I'm going to talk next time about some of Paul Bogosian's discussion of principles of transparency. There are a number of different formulations of transparency principles of uh, this kind that I'm going to talk about, um, that some of which are more problematic than others. But what's violated here is a principle that requires Mary to know what concept she is deploying, where it is assumed that one knows what concept one is deploying, if and only if one is deploying the same concept in all possible worlds that are epistemically possible at the time. On this horn of the dilemma, we have a direct connection between the content of Mary's thought 
and the qualitative character of her experience, that, uh, the experience that the thought is about. It's a connection that perhaps constitutes her being acquainted with the character of that experience. But the cost is that we must say that Mary is only indirectly connected to the content of her thought. So we have a sort of potential equivocation in the notion of, of, of acquaintance, whether it sort of attaches, we want it to attach both to the thought that we are having, we are acquainted with the contents of our thought, the constituents of the contents of our thought, and we are acquainted with the, uh, with the experience. And these things are supposed to come together uh, in the case of our knowledge of our phenomenal experience. So what is this mysterious epistemic relation that is supposed to connect us directly either to our experience or to our thought about it or both? To be acquainted with an object, according to Russell, is to have a direct cognitive relation to that object. That is, to be directly aware of the object itself. The paradigm of objects of acquaintance for Russell were sensory experiences, but the same epistemic relation uh, that connects us to our experience is supposed to to connect us to the constituents of of our our thoughts. So Russell, uh, every proposition which we can understand must be composed wholly of constituents with which we are acquainted. Um, and and this, he says, is a fundamental uh, uh, principle. Uh, Now, we may have moved beyond Russell's simple picture of the way we are related to the constituents of the contents of our thought, but the assumption that we stand in a distinctive and direct uh, epistemic relation to the contents of our thought persists. So this is Michael Dummett more recently. Um, A thought is transparent in the sense that if you grasp it, you thereby know everything to be known about it as it is in itself. This sounds a lot like acquaintance. Uh, And it also sounds a lot like um, um, knowledge of essence. As we've seen, there are problems with the idea that we are acquainted with our sensory experience, problems that suggest that the paradigm case of acquaintance may be a poor model for understanding our epistemic relation to the contents of our thought. But it can't be denied that there's some kind of special epistemic relation that we stand in to the contents of our thought. The problem is to try to pin down exactly what it is. Now, the identification of acquaintance with knowledge of essence that was explicit in Lewis is also suggested by Michael Dummett's uh, statement about the transparency of thought. It echoes Lewis's principle of identification. The one says that we know the essence of our experience just by having it. The other says that we know everything essential to a thought simply by thinking it. In both cases, a thesis about our knowledge of experience or of propositional content puts constraints on the nature of what is known. If the principles were correct, then experience would have to be the kind of thing whose nature is fully revealed in the having of experience. And the contents of thought would have to be the kind of thing whose nature is fully revealed in the thinking of the thought. It's easy to see why on this picture, the idea that a singular proposition could be the content of a thought must be rejected. 
the kind of internalist picture that accepts this kind of principle of acquaintance will grant that individuals may be involved in the characterization of the content of thought, that is, belief may be in a sense about London or Bismarck or whatever, but um, the internalist will insist that thought is characterized only indirectly, the contents of our thought are characterized only indirectly in terms of individuals. John McDowell gives what I think is an apt description of this internalist picture, which he attributes to the Fregians, and which he argues we should reject. But let me just, so, and this is on the handout, um, as well as here. When we mention an object in describing a thought, we are giving only an extrinsic characterization of the thought since the mention of the object takes us outside of the subject's mind. But there must be an intrinsic characterization available, one which does not take us outside of the subject's mind. And that that characterization would have succeeded in specifying the essential core of the thought, even if extramental reality had not obliged by containing the object. Again, this this is a view that uh, McDowell is, is um, describing, but um, not endorsing or arguing against. But of course, properties and relations also have essential natures. Knowing everything there is to be known about pineapples or light bulbs, blueness, liquidity, fatherhood, inertia, or whatever, uh, as they are in themselves, is at least as demanding as knowing the essential nature of London or of Bismarck or of the experience of seeing red. It's hard to see what resources there might be for specifying the essential core of any thought, uh, resources that do not take us outside of the subject's mind. And as we've seen with the... With the um, with the characterization of the essential nature of uh, even experience, even when you stay within the subject's mind, uh, it's not clear that you're meeting uh, the internalist constraint. So the alternative uh, to this picture is to recognize that contents themselves are ways of characterizing a state of mind extrinsically. If a thought has, as its content, a singular proposition about London, it's because the ascriber of the thought, not because of uh, of some feature uh, that's internal, uh, but rather because the ascriber of the thought can correctly characterize the world as the thinker takes it to be as a function of London, which in the normal case can be done when possible worlds containing London are apt for describing that thinker's cognitive states. To describe a person's state of mind in terms of the objects, properties, and relations that the attributor finds in the world is not to give an indirect or approximate characterization of an intentional state that might be described more directly. It's not that if we were to open up the person's mind and stare it in the face, we would find the content as it is in itself. There is... Alas, only a brain in the head, no pieces of information 
no contents wide or narrow. Propositions, whether they are Fragian thoughts, Russellian complexes, sets of possible states of the world, primary intentions, um, whatever, are abstract objects that we use to represent certain capacities and dispositions of people and certain kinds of social relations between them. There is, of course, a daunting general problem of saying what it is for a way the world might be, or a set of such ways, to represent the way the world is according to some person's beliefs or knowledge. The problems of intentionality and knowledge are problems of saying how believers and knowers must be related to the objects, properties, and relations that are used to characterize the world according to them in order for the characterization to be correct. But what is required for a subject to have knowledge or belief about a particular individual, knowledge or belief with a singular proposition as its content, is not some very strong acquaintance relation with an individual, and it's also not some rich or detailed conception of it. These things are neither necessary nor sufficient. As the familiar puzzle cases, the Babylonians and Hesperus Phosphorus, Ralph and Ortcut, Pierre and London Londra, Mary and Fred and Wow, and so forth, as these cases bring out, one may be strongly acquainted in some ordinary sense um, of acquaintance with some object or person or type of experience in different ways. And one may have different rich and detailed conceptions of an individual without realizing that they're different conceptions of, an, uh, of the same individual. In such cases, one cannot, at least without some special contextual clues, aptly and unambiguously characterize the world as it is according to that person as a function of the individual. But in a normal case where one has, in context, a single dominant cognitive connection with an individual, one may unambiguously describe the world according to the thinker as a function of that individual, even if the connection is weak and one's conception of the object is thin and mostly inaccurate. That's the kind of lesson, I think, that's brought out by, by the examples that Kripke used in naming and necessity. Pierre, for example, knows much less about the city of Kiev than he knows about London. And perhaps what little he believes about this city is mistaken. He thinks it's in Russia, for example, rather than Ukraine. But he's heard of it. And so we can correctly characterize the world according to Pierre by locating Kiev, the city itself, in that possible world. And we can correctly ascribe to Pierre beliefs in singular propositions about that city. We have to use some of the materials we find in the actual world to characterize the ways people take things to be. There isn't anything else to use. And cities and people and physical objects are as good as anything else in the right circumstances for this purpose. But while I think it's an unavoidable fact about propositional content, however it's explained, that it's the kind of thing that can be characterized only in terms of materials that are external to the mind, 
of the subject whose thought has that content. Um, so while I think this is unavoidable, there's nevertheless a prima facie tension much discussed in the philosophical literature between this fact and the fact that it is the subject's perspective on the world that we are using content to characterize. And so the characterization can be correct only if the subject has, in some sense, to be clarified, epistemic access to the content of her own thought. So next week I want to take a look at this uh, tension, in particular what happens uh, when beliefs change uh, over time, and argue that some of the apparatus we've been using may help um, to resolve it, or at least to make clear what's going on. While some people are tempted, some philosophers are tempted to respond to the tensions between externalism and privileged accesses, as put, um, respond to it by retreating to an internalist uh, picture. I want to argue that uh, an adequate response requires a move in the opposite direction to a more resolute and thoroughgoing kind of externalism. Thanks.